now I will ask you uh, to kneel with me. Let's have a season of prayer together uh, before we get into our study here. And so if you can kneel with me, let's kneel together. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy holy name. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful blessings, uh, taking care of our needs. You always take care of our needs. Sometimes we don't recognize the, the needs that we have, and yet you still take care of them. We're thankful for the Sabbath day that you created, that we can come apart from the world, that we can rest, have a spiritual rest as well as a physical rest. And spend time in fellowship, good fellowship with each other, like believers and heavenly angels. We pray that the angels from heaven will be with us now. We ask the Holy Spirit to be with us as well in our hearts and our minds, that we may be attentive to the truth of your word, that we may understand the principles that you have for us today, that we may make them a part of our very life and have these righteous habits that will bring glory to thy name. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus who lived a righteous life as our example, died on the cross for our sins, was raised again because he did no sin, and ministers for us in heaven right now. Lord, we pray for the Holy Spirit to help us to aid him in in that work that souls may be saved for the kingdom. Father, we pray that you will forgive us our sins. We claim the blood of Jesus that was shed there at Calvary. And we ask that may help us to overcome these tendencies that we may have. Forgive us, please, Lord. We lift up before you as well those on our prayer list. We think of uh, Denny and Kurt, terrible situation. We pray that you'll bring peace to their hearts, knowing that your will be done. And one day soon, when Jesus comes, there will be no more death, no more sickness, no more diseases. Praise God. We lift up uh, those on our prayer list. We think of Candace and her husband and son and brother-in-law who are traveling. We pray that you will surround them with angels that excel in strength, that they may uh, return home safely. We think of her as she tries to teach her young sons. Give her the wisdom and knowledge to do so. Open their minds, Father, to hear the truth that will be seen in their life. We think of our dear sister Jerry as well. We pray that you'll be very near to her and help us to to be a comfort to her and an encouragement to her, to stand tall. Father, we thank you so much for all the wonderful things that you do for us continually. Be with me as I give this message. Give me the words to speak. May they be your words, not my opinions. May hearts be attuned to it. And may we hasten the day that Jesus returns. Thank you for hearing this prayer, because it's asked in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this is part two of a message I began uh, actually a couple weeks ago. I've entitled it, A Great Tumult. And in part one, I'm going to kind of go over it a little bit, some of the highlights, I guess, because it's been a couple weeks. 
but in part one we began looking at in miniature uh, the great controversy between Christ and Satan. It's something that I hope that we are very familiar with, that we have studied. Um, but we're going to look at it again. There are many lessons to be learned. The story of the great controversy actually has been told to us on a human level um, in miniature in both the Old and New Testaments. Uh, we find that, of course, in the, the Bible. This is the great, te- the great controversy. Excuse me here. Oh. Yeah, I have to... <coughs> wow. Don't you love that? You get a tickle and you got to sneeze and then it don't, won't, you won't sneeze. And <laughs> Anyway, we find it throughout the Bible. That's, we are in the great controversy between Christ and between Satan. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Springley. Thank you very much. And as we study this, I hope that you'll see the, the parallels uh, in the examples that have been written down for us, this generation that lives uh, near the second coming of Jesus, because these parallels, they're to teach us a lesson, aren't they? And they're to prepare us for what's coming so we may be found faithful when Jesus returns. And I, again, I praise God for this. Now, we saw parallels between the war in heaven and the war between Absalom and his father, King David. And I'm hoping that you'll be able to see that there are also parallels of what is going to happen between the professed church and the true church before the end of this great controversy. This is the emphasis in this study. Now, you know, have you ever wondered why there are such parallels recorded in God's Word that spans thousands of years? We were talking about a little bit uh, at Sabbath school this morning. Why are there these parallels that you find in God's Word? These people live thousands of years apart, yet their, their stories are very similar. And you've heard me say, haven't you? I hope that you have, and those who are new probably, of course, haven't. You've heard me say that there are only two spirits in this world. There's the Spirit of Christ, it's called the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of Antichrist. Thus, only two churches. There may be many different organizations, but there's only two churches, the Church of Christ and the Church of Antichrist. And the truth of it is, friends, no matter what, how long we've had since the beginning of of time since the fall, we'll say, uh, the truth is that you'll become conformed to either one or the other of those spirits. And that's what our personal choice is really about. Will we be like Jesus or will we be like the Antichrist? Now we have free will, we make choices, but one or the other of those two spirits are vying for our hearts and our minds. And we're going to make decisions based on that. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 24, He said, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's wealth, treasure. We can't serve two masters. So throughout history, People were making that choice between masters and then living as one or the other in spirit. So we can see that the the great controversy between Christ and Satan 
and I, I want to emphasize this again, it is a very real way, in a very real way, being played out in humanity. In heaven, Lucifer introduced the idea that they would be freer if they got out from under the law. In other words, if he was God, they would be a freer being. Absalom, we found, did the very same thing. He claimed that uh, he would be a better king than his father. Lucifer stole the affections of the angels in heaven. Absalom stole the hearts of the children of Israel. Lucifer publicly proposed to be loyal to the government of God, but secretly he was trying to overthrow the government of God. Absalom did the very same thing. Publicly, he was a true, faithful, uh, loyal subject of David's kingdom. But privately, he was trying to overthrow the kingdom. Satan wanted to displace God as ruler. Absalom wanted to displace David as ruler. A controversy developed between Lucifer and the God of heaven. A controversy developed between Absalom and his father, King David. And because of the mercy and long-suffering that was manifested in both cases, both Lucifer and Absalom thought that if they persisted long enough, they would get their own way. And sometimes, friends, our long-suffering and our patience gets misconstrued as well, doesn't it? So I hope you're, you're seeing that every point being presented has a direct application for God's church at the end of time. Like I said, there are only two spirits in this controversy and you'll be conformed by one or the other. In both cases, in heaven and in Israel, each side claimed to be loyal and true. The people that were following Absalom in his rebellion claimed to be loyal and faithful and the people following David in that controversy, they claimed to be loyal and faithful. In heaven, Lucifer's followers certainly felt that they were being loyal and true to God, but there was only one side that was really true and loyal to God. The other side, although they professed to be loyal, they weren't really loyal, were they? They were actually the enemies of God. Absalom was an enemy to David. Now White said that the devil maintained that he was faithful and loyal to the very end until he was cast out of heaven. I shared this before, I think, and I think we see the same attitude today from the professed church, friends. This is from the Great Controversy, pages 498-499. To the very close of the controversy in heaven, the great usurper continued to justify himself. When it was announced that with all his sympathizers, take note of that, friends. I'll get to that in a minute. When it was announced that with all his sympathizers, he must be expelled from the abodes of bliss, then the rebel leader boldly avowed his contempt for the Creator's law. See, before that time, he was working behind the scenes. He reiterated his claim that angels needed no control, but should be left to follow their own will which would ever guide them right. 
Your own will will guide you right, see? Do you see that in the world today? I remember uh, remember Oprah Winfrey had this special show, and, and it's all about the inner self, that light that's within each of us, that light, our will, that guides us to right. That's what Jeremiah says. <laughs> exactly. He denounced the divine statutes, this is Lucifer, he denounced the divine statutes as a restriction of their liberty and declared that it was his purpose to secure the abolition of law that freed from this restraint, the hosts of heaven might enter upon a more exalted and more glorious state of existence. Don't we hear that today? You talk to some people and they say, well, you know... If I follow Jesus, I can't do this and can't do that and can't and can't and can't and can't. Don't you? Haven't you experienced that? Haven't you heard that? Don't people say that? They, it's too restrictive, right? With one accord, Satan and his host threw the blame of their rebellion wholly upon Christ, declaring that if they had not been reproved. Take note of that too. If they had not been reproved, they would never have rebelled. Really. Why are they being reproved? Because they rebelled. (laughs) He's very subtle, isn't he? Thus stubborn and defiant in their disloyalty, seeking vainly to overthrow the government of God, yet blasphemously, claiming to be themselves the innocent victims of oppressive power. The ark rebel and all his sympathizers again were at last banished from heaven. So I want, I want you to notice, and I want to emphasize this again, notice that the attack was on the law of God and that to be reproved for sin, what happened? That really infuriated them. We see that today, right? Something else we need to be very, very careful about. And I want to just touch on this. We need to be very careful not to sympathize with those who are in gross error and open sin. This is what got at least a third of the angels thrown out of heaven, friends. It got most of Israel in trouble as they sided with Absalom because they sympathized with him. And it will get the majority of Adventists, sad to say, to stay in the wrong church. And I'm going to tell you, there is a tremendous amount of counsel for us not to do this, not to sympathize. And we've experienced such a thing within our own local church before. Someone was disfellowshipped and the only association we're to have with such a one is to call them to repentance. And this was explained quite well to the congregation, but there were those who continued to associate with this person and you know what it did? It hardened him into his sinful position. You see, he had sympathizers and so he thought he was unjustly dealt with by the church, but he was not. Church followed scripture. Now, all of them are out of the church because of those choices. So I'm going to tell you, be very 
careful, beloved. Now today there is the true church and and the professed church. And the true church and the professed church both make the same profession, don't they? And it's very difficult to differentiate. It's hard to tell the difference between, friends, the tear and the wheat. Because the tear looks the same as the wheat until the fruit ripens. It's hard to tell the difference between the wise and the foolish virgins, isn't it? Until the call from the bridegroom comes. It's difficult to see the Laodicean who professes to be the true. But friends, there is a difference. And we must come to understand what that difference is. They figured it out in heaven with Lucifer. They figured it out in Israel with Absalom. And God has given us the keys to figure it out. So we won't be deceived. You think God wants us to be deceived? Of course He doesn't. The prophet makes a sharp distinction between the true church of God and those that profess to be the true church of God but really aren't. In her writings, she has a lot to say about the nominal church and the nominal Adventists at the end of time. Notice this statement I shared in part one. It's from Manuscript Releases, volume 5, page 290. War is coming against the remnant because they keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus. Don't yield your sacred peculiarities which distinguish you from the world, from the nominal church and black backslidden Adventists. The nominal churches are in darkness and corrupt. They have shut out, you remember this? They have shut out the gifts God has placed in the church. They've shut them out. And that last sentence there, friends, let's take note of it because it's a key for us to use to determine between the true and the professed church. You know, we, we studied ten features about the true church in the last several months and in part one of this message I highlighted two features uh, as they are very appropriate, I believe, friends, in describing the true church at the end of time. We find it in Revelation 12, verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Now the woman, of course, is the church. It's a symbol of the church. And the remnant of her seed. That's the people who are members of the church, right? That are followers. They're the ones that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, if you're not keeping the commandments of God, Satan has no war to bring to you. If you're not following the testimony of Jesus Christ, Satan's not going to war with you. You're on the same side. But we found that the war in heaven was over what? It was over the law of God, wasn't it? Specifically the first commandment. And they made the choice what side they're going to be on based upon that. And from a human point of view, of course, it was, it was trickier in David's time than it was in heaven. Because David, well, David wasn't God, for one thing, and he was a sinner, for another. And it was well known throughout the nation of Israel at the time of Absalom's rebellion that David was a murderer and that he was an adulterer. Remember, he had Uriah the Hittite killed by treachery so he could have Bathsheba as his wife. You remember that story? It's a very famous story. 
Well, it's famous, all right. All Israel knew. But Absalom was guilty as well. He had his half-brother murdered because he had raped Absalom's sister. But by popular opinion, it appeared, see, it appeared that Absalom was much more righteous than David was. And so it was all very confusing because they were both lawbreakers. So how would you have been able to tell on which side to join? The vast majority in the nation of Israel joined Absalom. But how could you have been able to tell who was the true and who wasn't? And I shared this before. I know of only one way, friends. I mean, in this situation, you couldn't have decided from the law of God because David looked like a worse sinner than Absalom did. The only way uh, that I know that you would have been able to tell the difference was through the spirit of prophecy. You see, because Samuel, who was a true prophet, had anointed David as the king of Israel. Neither Samuel nor any other prophet had anointed Absalom as king of Israel. And by the way, you couldn't have told by church organization either because one of the high priests uh, went along with Absalom too. The only people who could have remained stable on the right side in this civil war between the true church and the nominal church, under the leadership of Absalom, were those who had confidence in the spirit of prophecy. And what did we read before? What was that statement before? The nominal church rejects the gifts God gives to the church. Right? They've shut out the gifts God has placed in the church, was the statement. And I'm going to tell you, friends, in the controversy, at the end of time, there will only be two anchors that can hold you, and that's the law of God, and that's the spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus. We read it there in Revelation 12, 17. That's all. That'll be all. If you don't have those two anchors, you're not going to make it to heaven, friends. There was a civil war between the true remnant church and the professed or nominal remnant church in David's time. Will it be like that in the end times? Absolutely. I mean, the time came when every angel in heaven had to take a position. The time came in the life of David when every single person in Israel had to take a side. And I'm going to tell you, there's a time coming at the end when every single person will have to take a side because a war is going on right now. Spiritual conflict. So how can you tell the difference between the remnant, God's true church, and those who profess to be God's people, but aren't the nominal church? Spirit of Prophecy. Ellen White wrote numerous statements on the subject of the remnant, who they are, who they are not, and I want to share some of those with you. I'm going to begin with one out of the Signs of the Times. It was an article in the Signs of the Times, April 22nd, 1889. She says, Although the law of God will be almost universally made void in the world, there will be a remnant of the righteous that will be obedient to God's requirements. They're going to be obedient. The wrath of the dragon will be directed against the loyal servants of heaven. Says the prophet... 
The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's Revelation twelve seventeen that we read earlier. We can see from this scripture. What can we see from this scripture, friends? She says we can see from this scripture that it is not the true church of God that makes war with those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It is the people who make void the law, who place themselves on the side of the dragon and persecute those who vindicate God's precepts. I'll tell you this, friends. When speaking to those in the professed church about who and what is the church, I've asked them to tell me if the remnant church wars against the remnant church. Of course, they consider that a silly question. Um, But it's actually a very serious question. God's true church doesn't persecute those who are giving the three angels messages, do they? Think about that. There's another quote. Review and Herald, May 3rd, 1898. A striking contrast is seen between those who practice the truth and those who have joined the ranks of the apostate. So the true church does what? It practices the truth. And we've gone through these these things in our study of who and what the church is and organization, right? But notice she says there's a striking contrast that will be seen. She goes on, she says, Meek and lowly will those be who follow the Lamb of God. Boastful, denunciatory and lawless in word and deed will those be who war against the commandments of God. They are thus because they have the spirit and attributes of the dragon. Remember I told you there's only two spirits in the world? (laughs) And she says this. They have the spirit and attributes of the dragon who was wroth with the woman went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Again, quoting Revelation 12, 17. Here's another one. Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 380. The remnant that purify their souls by obeying the truth. When you obey the truth, friends, it's going to make you more pure. You're going to be closer to Jesus. She says, The remnant that purify their souls by obeying the truth gather strength from the trying process, exhibiting the beauty of holiness amid the surrounding apostasy. That goes right along with what she said about there's a striking contrast that will be seen between those who practice the truth and those who have joined the ranks of the apostate. So the true remnant, they purify their souls by obeying the truth. I'll tell you something else, friends. The the remnant church will meet the qualifications that we find in Zephaniah 3 and verse 13. speaks specifically about the remnant. Zephaniah 3 and verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. And I'm going to tell you something, that the nominal church will not be able to meet these qualifications. Because, see, they profess to be the church, but really they are not. They're not obeying the truth. They're not practicing the truth. They're not meek and lowly. 
These are some things that we can see with our own eyes, friends. Here's another one. Review and Herald, October 11th, 1906. In this our day, some whose tongues are deceitful have been presenting as truth many things that they themselves have originated. As if the law of truth were in their heart and coming from their lips. Listen to this, friends. But the Lord will surely punish every deceitful, lying tongue that has caused His people to err and to turn from the righteousness of Christ. Friends, there are many ministers and teachers within the professed church that are presenting error as truth. If they weren't, they'd they'd be the true church. (laughs) I mean, they teach the new theology that you're born a sinner and you cannot overcome sin. That's not biblical. They teach that Jesus didn't have a human nature like ours, that He never could have sinned because He had the human nature of Adam before Adam fell. That's not true either. They teach that there's no sanctuary in heaven. Do you know that? You know what that does? Basically, they're saying there's no investigative judgment. Thus, there's no reason for the 2300-day prophecy. There's no 1844. How many are aware that they teach evolutionary theory? Do you know that? That the six days of creation are not literal. And much more, friends. It's disheartening. And I shudder when I think of the punishment that lies ahead for such ministers and teachers. They think they are the church. That's the deception. We've seen Revelation 12 symbolizes the remnant church as a woman. Do you know that the Bible says that this remnant is going to have to go through the valley of Achor? Do you know that? The valley of Achor. Achor means the valley of trouble or the valley of grief. Were you aware that that's where Achan was stoned? You can read about that in Joshua 7. Achan was stoned in the valley of Achor. The valley of trouble, the valley of grief. So this woman of Revelation 12 has to go through the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble or grief where the Achans get stoned to death. It's not going to be a pleasant experience either, friends. I could go on, but you can read that about that in Prophets of Kings. On page 298 to 300, around in there. Speaking about the remnant people, Ellen White says in Signs of the Times, August 26, 1889, there must be open and avowed enmity between the church and the serpent, between her seed and his seed. That's an incredible statement. What is enmity? Hatred. A call from the wilderness says. There must be open and avowed hatred between the church and the serpent, between her seed and his seed. Where does this hatred come from? Where did this enmity come from? Well, from where did the enmity come in heaven? One side wanted to adjust the law of God, remember? From where did the enmity come in David's time? One side did not want to listen to the spirit of prophecy. They had a hatred for it. 
And that's where the enmity comes from at the end, friends. People do not want to abide by the law of God. They don't want to listen to the spirit of prophecy. They want to do their own thing. If it feels good, do it. Remember that? Well, maybe some of you aren't old enough to remember that. So they arouse enmity. The remnant do not arouse enmity. I mean, haven't you heard that a a church that is lessening the distance between itself and the papacy is an apostate church? Well, friends, that's not the remnant church. Does the remnant church lessen the distance between itself and the papacy? Review and Herald, November 8, 1892. An apostate church will unite with the powers of earth and hell to place upon the forehead or in the hand the mark of the beast and prevail upon the children of God to worship the beast and his image. They will seek to compel them to renounce their allegiance to God's law and yield homage to the papacy. Here's another amazing statement. Short one. Manuscript releases, volume 5, page 53. God has a remnant people in the world, a people who are not following worldly policy. Well, I have to ask, just what is worldly policy? I mean, you have that question? What is worldly policy? From Councils to Writers and Editors, page 95. You want to know what worldly policy is? Listen to this. The religion of Jesus is endangered. It is being mingled with worldliness. Worldly policy is taking the place of the true piety and wisdom that comes from above. And God will remove His prospering hand from the conference. Boom. That's interesting there, isn't it? So she says, worldly policy is taking a place of what? True piety and wisdom that comes from above. She goes on. Shall the Ark of the Covenant be removed from this people? What's she mean by that? Worldly policy removes the law of God. Right? Shall idols be smuggled in? Worldly policy has people make idols. Not necessarily those that sit on your shelf. Right? But whatever has the throne of your heart, friends. She says, Shall false principles and false precepts be brought into the sanctuary? Is the church teaching false principles and false precepts? That's worldly policy. Here's one. Shall Antichrist be respected? Does the true church give the Pope a gold medal? (laughs) I'm just saying, friends. Shall the true doctrines and principles given us by God, which have made us what we are, be ignored? When you ignore, you're following worldly policy. Shall God's instrumentality the publishing house, become a mere political, worldly institution? Think about that. 
This is directly where the enemy, through blinded, unconsecrated men, is leading us. Wow. Notice this one. What is worldly policy? Ministry of Healing, page 213. Many suppose that in order to reach the higher classes, a manner of life and method of work must be adopted that will be suited to their fastidious tastes. An appearance of wealth, costly edifices, expensive dress, equipage and surroundings, conformity to worldly customs, the artificial polish of fashionable society, classical culture, the graces of oratory are thought to be essential. This is an error. The way of worldly policy is not God's way of reaching the higher classes. That which will reach them effectually is a consistent, unselfish presentation of the gospel of Christ. There's a difference between worldly policy and not. Right there. One more. 1888 materials. What is worldly policy? 1888 materials, page 1680. A worldly policy is regarded as wise, while the divine policy... Singular in the eyes of the world is thought to be foolishness. A mark will thus be left on the work which will not appear objectionable, but which will receive God's disapproval. So sometimes we may look at the world's way of reaching people and think, oh, that's a good way of doing it. But it's not God's way of doing it. We've listed here, we've seen, What is worldly policy? The remnant church does not follow worldly policy. Do I have to say that any church that's following worldly policy is not the remnant? Notice this. Manuscript releases volume 11. Pages 85 to 86. In the church, it says, in the, in the courts of the temple, which is the church, Ellen White says this, under the cloak of Christianity and sanctification, far-spreading and manifest ungodliness will prevail to a terrible degree and will continue until Christ comes to be glorified in all them that believe in the very courts of the temple. Again, this is the nominal church. Scenes will be enacted that few realize. Are we seeing any of this today in the church that professes to be the remnant? The true remnant is actually obedient to all of God's word and commands. Remember what Jesus said? The desert there, he was tempted said in Matthew 4, verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth... Where? Where from? Out of the mouth of God. Remnant lives by the word of God. They actually do it. They don't just profess to. I've had some people challenge this next statement 
even after reading it, right out of the spirit of prophecy, word for word. They just won't accept it. And I'm sure, as you've witnessed, you've shared you know, scriptures from the Bible and had people say, well, that's your interpretation. Has that ever happened to you? I've had people tell me. They just don't accept this statement. It's right out of the spirit of prophecy. It goes right along with what I've shared before. Signs of the Times, April 22nd, 1889. Although the law of God will be almost universally made void in the world, there will be a remnant of the righteous that will be obedient to God's requirements. The wrath of the dragon will be directed against the loyal servants of heaven. I've shared this before. It says the prophet, the dragon was wroth with the woman went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We can see from this scripture that it's not the true church of God that makes war with those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It is the people who make void the law, who place themselves on the side of the dragon and persecute those who vindicate God's precepts. I shared this with you before, and I'm emphasizing it, huh? I'm emphasizing it. Because people object to it. They say no. Well, I say, well, that's when I ask the question, does the remnant church war against the remnant church? I'm going to tell you something, friends. When you sue somebody, you're waging legal war against them. Did you know that? And I'll tell you this. Before life on this world is over, each one of us, each one who wants to stand faithful, each one who stands faithful, will understand what the Judas kiss feels like. You know what the Judas kiss is, don't you? The Judas kiss comes from the one who claims to be your friend but betrays you. My wife and I have had some experience with that. It's heart-wrenching. And I'm going to tell you something. The Judas kiss doesn't come from the remnant church, the true church. Judas was not a part of the remnant church. He was part of the nominal church. No, friends. The nominal church is going to give the Judas kiss to the true church. I you to remember... The majority was on Absalom's side, weren't they? By the providence of God, even though the servants of David, under the generalship of Joab, were vastly outnumbered, the time came when this great rebellion of the majority of God's professed people was brought to an end. And I'm going to tell you that the rebellion among God's professed people today is going to be brought to an end too. And when the rebellion was brought to an end there in Israel, Joab needed somebody to take the message to King David. And he was waiting at the city for news. And there was a man with Joab. He was a runner. These were... Guys that ran the messages. They were like marathoners practically. His name was Ahimaaz. 
He desperately wanted to tell the king the news, but Joab told him no. And it's very interesting. Why would Joab tell this particular runner, this man, no? That grabbed my attention. Why not? Why not use this man? Let's find out. 2 Samuel 18, verse 19, then said Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, by the way, Zadok was a high priest. So, he was the son of a high priest. That's significant. He said, Let me now run and bear the king tidings, how that the Lord hath avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said unto him, Thou shalt not bear tidings this day, but thou shalt bear tidings another day. But this day thou shalt bear no tidings, because the king's son is dead. Now what was it that Ahimaaz wanted to tell the king? He wanted to tell him good news, didn't he? How the Lord hath avenged him of his enemies. didn't say anything about Absalom. Right? But instead of sending Ahimaaz, Joab called Cushi and asked him to carry the tidings. This is interesting. All oh, friends, there's so many lessons here. <laughs> so Joab called Cushi. He was another runner. However, Ahimaaz begged Joab, Oh, please let me go and bear the message too. And finally, probably because he was a little aggravated, Job said, well, just go. Probably just, get out of my face, (laughs) kind of thing. Now, what's interesting is that Ahimaaz was a faster runner than Cushy was. And he got to King David first. And David, of course, well, you can imagine the kind of stress he was in, wondering what had happened. After all, his whole life was at stake. And he was fighting his son. And so when Ahimaaz arrived, David asked for his message. And, and notice what, what he reported. We find it in verse 28. But he said, basically, everything's fine. Verse 28. And Ahimaaz called and said unto the king, All is well. And he fell down to the earth upon his face before the king, and he said, Blessed be the Lord thy God, which hath delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. Now let's consider this. What kind of man is this Ahimaaz? He's the son of a high priest. He's a runner. He wanted to go give the message, but Joab said no. He sent a different messenger. Finally, Ahimaaz was sent. And what kind of message did Ahimaaz give King David? Friends, I'll tell you, he gave a peace and safety message. He gave a peace and safety message. Many people today, even in Adventism, are like Ahimaaz. If you ask them what's happening, they'll tell you everything's fine. They'll tell you, oh, the third angel's message is going forward. Soon we're going to be in heaven. Everything's going wonderfully. They will not share 
any of the hard news. They don't go there. And the hard news has to be shared. David wasn't content with the message. So he pressed Ahimaaz. This gets us to our scripture reading for today. 2 Samuel 18 verse 29. And the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me thy servant, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. Oh, he knew. Friends, the final great tumult will come when in the war between the remnant and the nominal church, both claiming to be the true remnant, the leadership of the nominal church will finally receive a fatal and final defeat and the rebellion will collapse and be crushed. There certainly is a great tumult developing between us, friends. Ahimeaz, he saw the great tumult, but he didn't know what it was. It meant he didn't understand it. He didn't much care for it. I'm telling you, it's going to be over because it was over. There was a great tumult in that battle that he saw and it was finished. How long will it be before this war is over, this great controversy, this great tumult? This rebellion? Manuscript releases, volume 11, page 86. Alan White said, God's people will be proved and tested that he may discern between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Right now, it's like it was in heaven with the angels in many respects. It's also right now like it was with David and Absalom. Before the great tumult, there was a time when you could not tell for sure on which side each person was. But the Lord says, I'm going to prove. And I'm going to test my people. And when I get done, everybody in the universe, not just on earth, will be able to tell which person is serving me and which person is not. You'll be able to tell one of these days, very soon, the difference between those of the true remnant church and those who are the remnant church only by profession. And that's what the great tumult will demonstrate. The Spirit of Prophecy has several comments about this, including one in which she says that iniquity will reach a height never before attained. Do you see that happening? She states that the Lord will give the Israelites who are captive in Babylon the opportunity to come out and be part of the remnant. And she also says that the remnant will receive the latter rain, give the loud cry, and be sealed. And friends, do you, do you see why it could be a fatal consequence for you if you do not understand the difference between the remnant and the nominal church? 
This is why I spend a good amount of time looking at how the Bible describes the true church, who and what is the church. Don't want you to be deceived, friends. You could be part of those who claim to be the remnant, but if you do not actually have the characteristics of the remnant, you'll not receive the latter rain. You'll not be giving the loud cry. You'll not be one of those who are sealed. The remnant will have the heavenly credentials. The prophet says that it is through the, this remnant that God will carry out His eternal purposes. You can read about that, Prophets of Kings. Page 108. She also says that at the end of time when the remnant are sentenced to be slain, God will intervene on their behalf. He's not going to intervene on behalf of the nominal church. I'll tell you what. Read Ezekiel 9. You'll find out what's going to happen to them. Ahimaaz said, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. What is this great tumult today? This, what, what is causing this great tumult in our day? Well, friends, there are a number of things. I don't have time to get into all of them, but one of the big causes is fanaticism. I'll tell you that. We're going to have to deal with it. Notice this, Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 14. Every phase of fanaticism and erroneous theories claiming to be the truth will be brought in among the remnant people of God. They'll be brought in to who? The remnant people of God. These will fill minds with erroneous sentiments which have no part in the truth for this time. What do they have? They have no part for the truth for this time. Any man who supposes that in the strength of his own devised resolutions, in his intellectual might united with science or supposed knowledge, he can start a work which will conquer the world, will find himself lying among the ruins of his own speculations and will plainly understand why he is there. I'll tell you, friends, time is coming when every single Seventh-day Adventist who is espoused to fanaticism, they're going to reap the consequences of that fanaticism and, and they're going to know why. Fanaticism is very, very dangerous. Many millions of people have lost their souls over fanaticism. You believe that? I'm not talking about heresy. I'm not talking about Babylon, friends. I'm talking about fanaticism. The two Godhead fanaticism, you know. The one that says the Holy Spirit's not a person. That's a big one. The feast days fanaticism. There's all kinds of fanaticisms, friends. The God doesn't kill fanaticism. Here's one. The 2520 fanaticism. And friends, it is a fanaticism. And I believe it is currently destroying the truth about the 2300 day prophecy and which Ellen White says is the foundation and central pillar of the Advent faith. Great Controversy, page 410. Another huge fanaticism that plays right into this message I'm giving to you now. 
is that the spirit of prophecy has been tampered with. These are all people who claim to be members of the true remnant, friends. And please don't get confused. Ahimaaz was not an Achan. He was on the right side. He believed in the spirit of prophecy. He was a commandment keeper. He was the son of the high priest. But neither Joab nor David could depend on him as a messenger in God's work because he didn't know the issues. He didn't understand what was really happening. And I'll tell you, he represents literally thousands of people in Advent, the Advent movement today. He wasn't stoned to death as Achan was. He wasn't punished at all. He was simply told by David to stand aside. That's in 2 Samuel 18, verse 30, very next verse. Get out of the way. Stand aside. I mean, the story of Ahimaaz is not as sad as the story of Achan, in my opinion, but it's still very sad. Because Ahimaaz was very talented. He was actually more talented as a runner than Cushy. Cushy was the man that God sent with the message. But he couldn't be used as a messenger in God's work because he didn't understand what the issues were. He was not willing to give the hard message of truth. Something very interesting. I was studying this and it caught my attention. I was doing some reading. In the spirit of prophecy, we read about the experience of of God's people after they're taken to heaven and and they're gathered around the, the great white throne. Some of you have read that. And it describes many of God's people as weeping in heaven. You know, people say, you're not going to cry in heaven. I've heard people say that. Don't deceive yourself. (laughs) After God wipes the tears from people's eyes at the close of the millennium, there will not be crying. But during the millennium, I'm telling you, friends, there will be plenty of crying. But, But why are they weeping? That's what struck me. Why are they weeping? Well, in Testimonies for the Church, volume 5, page 135, she explains... That's something very interesting. She says, They see what they might have done had they not debased their God-given powers. Now these, these people aren't Achans. They wouldn't be in heaven. They're not stoned to death. They're not in hellfire. They're saved. And yet they are weeping in heaven. And they're weeping because when they understand the real issues, they finally understand... They wish that time could be turned back so they could come back to this world and live their lives over again. And I expect that there will be millions of people in heaven like Ahimaaz. But friends, do you really want to be one of them? I don't want to be one of them. What have we learned? Remember, in heaven both sides claim to be the true and the faithful. In the time of David and Absalom, both sides claimed to be the true and the faithful. And at the end, both sides will claim to be the true and the faithful. And I hope you'll study the different points from the spirit of prophecy so you can differentiate which side 
really is true and faithful and which side is not. You need to ask yourself, am I part of the true remnant or am I part of the professed remnant? Because you cannot take a neutral position. A war is going on right now between the true remnant and those who are in name only. Actually, it's been going on for several years and it's going to get worse. Unfortunately, there's a large number of people like him I have. I saw a great tumult. I didn't know what it was. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12.30? He that is not with me is against me. And even if you are on the right side, if you do not know what is going on, then the Lord can't use you, you see, as one of His good and faithful soldiers in the battle. In the final end, there will only be two sides. Both sides will claim to be the true people of God. Both sides will claim to keep the fourth commandment. Both sides will claim to have the spirit of prophecy. On which side are you going to be? And if the Holy Spirit's going to use you as a messenger, as one of the true and faithful soldiers in these last days, the Holy Spirit must then enable you to see the difference between the remnant in truth and the remnant by profession only. And I praise God because God through His messenger to the remnant church provides a great deal of detail about what happened in heaven at the fall of Lucifer so that we may understand what was really involved. And we've just studied the great controversy in miniature, friends, as it developed and played out in the lives of David and Absalom. And I hope that we recognize that this story was written to help us understand what is going to happen at the end of time. God has told us that the the, the issues at the end, the, the strategy of the devil at the end, will be the same as at the beginning. And I'll tell you, friends, we are all in danger of being deceived. Unless the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of our understanding. There are so many people like Ahimaaz who think all is well. They see that a great tumult is going on, but they don't know what it is. I ask you, friends, pray that the Lord will open our eyes so we will understand what is really happening today. Not just in the church. and Not just in the world. All of it so that we will not be deceived. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again so much for your holy word. We thank you for your holy law. We know that it is a hedge around us to protect us. We thank you so much for the spirit of prophecy. It gives us greater insight that we need because we too often, Father, are just too ignorant. And I pray the Holy Spirit will come into our hearts and our minds enlighten us to these truths help us to have the eye salve that we may see clearly between the professed and the true so that we may be on the right side Father help us to organize as individuals and families and 
as your church so that we can receive the latter rain and share the final message, the one that Kushi gave, message of truth to the world before it's too late. We thank you so much for Jesus who has given us this chance. And we pray for these things in His blessed name, for He is indeed worthy. Amen.